0: Our community has a long history of interaction with science. I think it's accepted. Uyagalekhideh is uh, the closest term for geologist. It just means the, the rock guy, basically.
1: In the past, scientists and Native Americans have had dramatically different approaches to the study of the natural world. Richard Glenn, an Inupiaq Eskimo from Barrow, Alaska, represents both of these worldviews. He's a whale hunter, a culture bearer, and a leading scientific figure on Alaska's North Slope. You're listening to the Nature Stories podcast. I'm Samantha Brown. This podcast is curated by Atlantic Public Media in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy and the Public Radio Exchange. Each week we bring you pieces about the intersection of people and place. Up now, Richard Glenn, Inupiaq geologist, produced in 1998 by Robert Woolsey with Lisa Bush, who also narrates the piece.
0: One piece parka with no zipper. It's got a rough on it, fur rough made out of Wolverine, with a white canvas like cover on it. It's a typical whaling parka. Warmer than anything i bought from any store, any of those zipper kind of parkas. I've, I've got warm boots on and coveralls. i got a pair of fur pants in here in case these things aren't warm enough. i got some polar bear pants that I like to wear when I go waving.
2: You don't see too many geologists wearing polar bear pants, but Richard Glenn is an Inupiaq geologist, and the Inupiaq Eskimos, with their centuries of adapting to freezing conditions, have mastered the art of Arctic dress. Richard is director of the North Slope Borough's Energy Management Department. He is also a whaler. Today he is taking subsistence leave from his desk job and heads out to meet the rest of his whaling crew who are camped about a mile offshore in base camp.
0: This is Nange Aftowik. This is called It's a, It's a shelter camp. It's not, the, it's not a whaling camp. It's a camp that's back from the active ice edge. It's where you retreat to when things are in question, closer to the lead.
2: We travel to base camp by snowmobile, the most common form of transportation over the frozen ocean. Imagine a frozen ocean. To be honest, it's difficult to comprehend, even when I'm walking on it with my own two feet. And I never really get comfortable with the idea. But to a
0: geologist, the ice is a dream come true. It's geology and fast forward. Everything happens so that you can observe it. Instead of waiting and looking at the geologic record and watching and interpreting what happened, with sea ice, it's like a speeded-up version of plate tectonics. You can watch the mountains form in front of your eyes and then watch them dissipate again in the melt season, and then it happens all again next year. And the, the process when the ice is young in the early winter season is so dynamic, so, um, so exciting, that if you like geology, you'll love to watch sea ice.
2: Richard's parents met when his father, from Nebraska, was working at the Naval Arctic Research Laboratory in Barrow on a World War II-era defense system. The Glens moved to California's Bay Area, but kept their close ties to his mother's family in Barrow. Richard continued to eat traditional Inupiaq food and spent his summers and school vacations with relatives in the far north. He realized at an early age the power of knowledge and how it could influence decisions important to his native family.
0: And I saw that um, this knowledge of the land was important. At every meeting, someone who spoke with knowledge of the land was uh, given... He carried a lot of weight and clout and information. In fact, uh, even corporations or institutions that carried this knowledge also had a lot of influence. So in those days, for example, a certain oil company had a lot of knowledge about the resources of the North Slope. And I said, hey... If we could have this kind of knowledge ourselves, maybe we would, uh, it would give us more credibility and clout as we enter into major decisions on resource development. So, And, it, and then it was nifty because I get, to, I get to learn about the land in school and I get to learn about the land at home here. That was the purpose of my you know, decision to study geology.
2: Richard entered college with much more of a sense of purpose than most. A good thing, since a sense of purpose was at times all he could cling to.
0: I got a Bachelor of Science degree in geology from San Jose State. And I'm immediately proud because the first person in our family to graduate from college in, that, that I knew of. And I'm also proud for my regional and village corporation here on the North Slope because they helped fund my education. And now I wanted to do, I felt I owed them something, and I felt I had something to offer, but I knew it wasn't much, professionally speaking. I mean, I had a degree in geology. This is interesting, because if you get a bachelor's degree in teaching, you're a teacher, and you get a bachelor's degree in engineering, you're an engineer. But if you get a bachelor's degree in geology, you can dig ditches. And in fact, that's what I did that summer. I dug ditches as a new new graduate in geology.
2: After digging ditches, he decided to go back to school for his master's degree and began work on his doctorate. Working while in school, Richard eventually got his current job, the director of energy management for the North Slope Borough, the only borough in the United States which is run entirely on natural gas. The borough subsidizes energy costs and pipes gas heat into all the homes in Barrow, So it's not surprising that all North Slope residents appreciate geology.
0: Our community has a long history of interaction with science. I think it's accepted. Uyugalekde is uh, the closest term for a geologist. It just means the the rock guy, basically, and um, that means it's it's recognized by our community. It's accepted. Um, if a question comes up about the natural environment, they they'll look to you know if it has to do with the subsurface or or some kind of geologic process, they'll come. And, and look to me for some kind of help. So, not really looked upon like a Martian or anything. I mean, I think I think of all the disciplines to study, professional disciplines, those that study our natural environment are the most accepted by the elders of our community.
2: Like the ice he studies, Richard stands in a delicate state between the traditional Inupiaq world and a world obsessed with technology. Like other natives who have selected scientific careers, he has been trained to think in two languages, two cultures. It's a way of living that's not always easy. A foot in both worlds sometimes means standing alone.
0: I was the only one. That's, that's kind of a weird feeling. There's no other Inupiat kid studying geology when I was studying geology. You know, that's a double-edged sword. You can be proud that you're the only one, and you can be lonely that you're the only one. And I was probably alternatively one and the other during all those times.
2: Other Native scientists have similar stories. For marine biologist Dolly Garza, the hardships didn't end when she was done with school.
0: I feel that because of my degree, I have that obligation to continue to work for my people for as long as I can. I think that people expect me to do whatever I can to protect their uses and rights. You know, with so few Native biologists and Native resource management people, it's a burden you have to carry. Yeah, I think
1: if I walked away from it, I would never be happy with myself. Uphic culture does not segment the universe in the sense that Western
2: society does. Claudette bradley Coagley, an associate professor at the University of Alaska
1: in Fairbanks. So it doesn't have... Biology. Biology is mixed in with math. It's mixed in with spirituality. Everything is mixed in. It's more of a holistic view of what um, the universe
2: is about. Bradley Coagley is also Native American. Originally from Connecticut, she has a master's degree in mathematics and a doctoral degree in education. She teaches educators how to instruct math and science to Native students. She says while the differences between native and non-natives may seem obvious, teaching across cultural lines requires a level of sophistication rare in education majors.
1: Because Western society is always segmenting, you know, it kind of looks at everything with a microscope, so it doesn't see the periphery and it doesn't see that much the connections to the greater society. We don't need people with the same worldview. We need new thinkers. Are there any songs that you sing when you see water? That's just how I sing. It. Really?
2: Yeah. <laughs> well done. What does it mean? Huh?
1: What does it mean? That means we're gonna to go to open water. thanks a lot
2: barrow alaska the last vestige of land before a sea of ice heads off the horizon to the very top of the world a kind of border town barrow sits defiantly between ice and soil it's the end of may and the temperature hovers near 20 degrees the sky and the ocean are white as far as the eye can see. To the outsider, the ice is less than inviting. But to Richard, who is Eskimo and geologist, the ice is both home and work.
0: You see how mushy it is? Yeah. That's wet, high salinity surface. And you can feel it when you, you feel it vibrate under your feet. Yep. Yeah. I'm through the bottom now, and you should start to see water filling in the hole. There's always a little bit of slush at the bottom, there it is. So, uh, this ice is relatively thin, but it's growing, because temperatures are still below freezing. So there's a little bit of security in that. If it was the end of this month, or the beginning of next month, and this ice stayed here, or was this thickness at that time, and was deteriorating, then we would have a lot more concern being out standing on this thing.
2: A big part of whaling is making a trail from shore to the open ocean over the ice. This year, the open ocean is about seven miles offshore. Whaling crews spend long days chopping down huge pressure ridges of ice that are sometimes 20 feet tall. Crew members use ice picks to chop the ice ridges into cobblestone, or cobble ice, paths. The trails are then used to haul whaling equipment camping gear, and the umiak, the traditional sealskin boat the Inupiaks use to hunt for bowhead whales. I begin to feel awkward, watching the men swing ice picks while I stand and do nothing. I'm also starting to get really cold, so I start to pick up an ice pick, but I'm seven months pregnant, and one of the elders won't allow me to chop. Meanwhile, my husband has already joined in, and this seems to satisfy everyone, except for me, because I'm beginning to lose feeling in my feet.
0: I don't want to taste any of this ice. You'll get thirsty, salty. Snow might be fresh, but you get thirsty even eating snow. They say your body uses more water to thaw it out than, than you get from melting it.
2: Finally, I convinced them it'll be okay. And I chopped too. But I'm not a very good chopper, because like wood chopping, it helps to be accurate and strong. Still, I am doing something, and while I may not be taking hours off the whaler's time, I feel better.
0: You be nice on the ice. Um, we try to keep our mood light-hearted as possible, because bad feelings on the ice are, are no good. And I think there's obvious reasons for that. You stay warmer when you're happier, and you work better when you're happier. You, you don't make decisions when you're in a good frame of mind but when you're angry or sad or irrational or something then all of these things can go the other way. It's a conscious effort we make to stay upbeat when we're out here.
1: What about not wearing red?
0: We we don't wear red because we believe the animal, the whale can distinguish the red color and relates it to blood and instantly be uncomfortable and leave instead of otherwise staying or moving slowly or relaxing, so we don't wear red. We don't let the whale see red. We we create a blind around the whaling camp, try to make it look as ice-like as possible. Everybody wears white. The boat is white. The ice is white.
2: At around 11 o'clock in the evening, the sun is still high in the sky, But we take a break for food and a short rest at the base camp. The group, which has now grown to 10 or 12 men and boys, climb aboard the snowmobiles and head back toward land. I am on a snowmobile with my husband, and I tell him to hurry along so that we don't get left behind. Polar bears are a serious danger in this part of the world, and we are without a shotgun. Quarters for the whalers are a canvas wall tent heated with a kerosene stove and floored with plywood and foam. Sleeping bags and caribou hides are strewn over thin mattresses. The warm air inside is heavy with the smell of eider duck soup, fresh whale meat, seal oil, and coffee.
0: At camp, we eat native foods, frozen fish, frozen caribou, seal oil, some of the recently caught whales, as well as a healthy side dish of just tasty sweets and coffee, tea, crackers, a piece of hard candy now and then, and a donut maybe. Sure, cap. Thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, we? we're talking by radio to the crews on the next trail over. They saw us when we were standing on the high place. I saw them too. Are they pretty close? Yeah, sound like they're on the edge of the water too. Wishing them luck. That means they're ready for action.
1: Is there competition?
0: In a kind of a healthy way, yeah. But also, there's a lot of cooperation. If a captain catches a whale, everyone should every crew should send a representative to help him butcher that whale. If a whale is struck, other crews in the area should go to the vicinity of the struck whale and help make sure that it's taken care of immediately. When you see that large animal surface in the water right by you, it's very exhilarating.
2: While the crew rests, Richard takes us out for a quick tour of the ice.
0: Right here, separate that first major crack from land as you go out towards the rough, rubbly pressure ridge zone, and this, this is called a kukbak or crack in the ice. And we're looking towards the ocean. You see that dark band kind of over the horizon that indicates open water, that's kisu or water sky. That's what gives us a clue about where the open water is. And they're not snow drifts, but they're ice uh, melted and refrozen as you drive over it, it's very noticeable because you're not trying to go through snow drifts or angular blocks. You're going through these rounded ice hummocks. The the, the increased thickness means that it sits higher above the water. So you know immediately if you're on floating first-year ice and you've got to go up to get to this multi-year ice. And you see this hummocky surface. And it's got bubbles, characteristic bubbles near the surface that give you a clue. And then it, it also has this really blue color. But you can see all around you, there's all shades of blue. So some people make the mistake of looking for blue ice and calling it fresh water. It just happens to have a bluish color. Sometimes it's very pretty, very, very dark, brilliant blue. Did you you see how we dropped down from that level to this level? So this ice must be a lot thinner than that ice. We drove over that. That felt like first-year ice, or maybe at the most it's rafted up on top of itself. That means we're on thin young ice or siculaire this is siculaire in inupiaq. so uh this is a this is an a recently refrozen pond and uh, in at its thinnest portion it's about four or five inches thick, not where we are we're on rafted ice it's probably three or four times that thickness
1: as um as a geologist mm-hmm. what interests you about this area right here
0: it's uh it's active it's uh a natural geologic process just like plate tectonics or lava coming out of a volcano but here it happens to be water in its crystal and solid form it it responds to weather systems current systems uh, so it's always changing that means it's it's like it's like the newspaper something new every day
2: is it predictable
0: On different scales, it's predictable. Um, You can't predict from now until next year, but you can use yesterday's information to predict tomorrow. It's geology in action, and you're here on the ground floor.
1: I love it. (laughs)
2: Richard's knowledge is impressive. So I decide to embarrass myself and ask Richard about the old story that Eskimos have 50 terms for snow. It turns out it's not snow, it's ice.
0: The generic word for ice is siku, S-I-K-U, siku. And the freezing process of, of water in our ocean, the ocean is referred to as tariuk, which is also the same as our word for salt, but when you first begin to freeze the ocean, you form slush, kind of a greasy slush ice. And this word is kinnu. And then, as the ice begins to congeal, the first thing to form is beyond kinnu is sikuliar, or, or very thin, young ice. And sikuliar thickens eventually into something more than a few inches thick, maybe between six and ten inches thick, and becomes what we call sikuliar which means thicker, young ice. If a, if a piece of ice has, has been subjected to seasons of melt and refreeze and melt and refreeze, this thing is called pikhalayak, and this is our drinking water ice. The bands of uh, discontinuous ice that uh, occupy... It's ironic lead. that
2: the only other culture that would find so many subtleties in a single medium is the culture of science. But as Richard explains, when scientists come out on the ice, they might as well be coming out on another planet.
0: When we're out with Inupiaq people on the sea ice, our thought processes are focused on what's going on around us right now. What's the sea current like under our feet? What's the, what's the ice movement like? What was it yesterday? What will it be tomorrow? And when, I, when you're out with a group of Western scientists, unless that's the focus of your mission, you're out collecting data. You're there for the scope of the project. You need to get what you want and get out of there. And your generators running, and you need this core, or you know something like that. One of one of them is kind of uh, abstract or removed. The other one is a little bit more grounded.: if You come here from nowhere and you come in, you, and even though you know everything about the ice, how to identify and all that it doesn't mean nothing unless you've been taking inventory of the changes that have occurred over the season. Otherwise, you could take things out of context.
2: Being a scientist and a native is not something Richard routinely ponders until an outsider, like me, visits and requires a tour, not only of his hometown, but of his entire culture. Richard's a generous and open host. However, being a cultural spokesman is a responsibility he didn't bargain for when he went into geology.
0: The first burden, I feel, is a burden from people who come here from other places that have questions either about Inupiaq people or about this region. They're more comfortable talking to me, maybe because I look like I'm from Kansas instead of Barrow, because, well, because my dad's from Nebraska. Or, or because they're shy and they don't want to go talk to that old, wizened old man or that quiet lady over there. But I've grown accustomed to that, I guess. I can deal with that. It's not a, it doesn't bother me too much. It's a strange position to be in to to accept someone's questions when you know that they really would like the answer from those people, and here they're gonna, you know, this has always been bugging. Can you tell me why they always blank, or so? And then you got, and then you're put in the position of speaking for your people. Well, our people are diverse, just like any other cultural group. You know how would how would someone else feel if I went into the middle of Toledo, Ohio, and said, "Tell me, how do central midwestern people feel about?" apartheid or something you know we have a lifestyle here that's that in the absence of science visiting scientists or visiting journalists it would still continue and we would be fine but then th- th- these people come and they want to learn about us and here comes richard bringing the other strangers to the group again and and so i i would like to just be a regular old Inupiaq person and i can't because the fact that I chose to study something that we is important to our lifestyle, and I chose to study it in a university setting automatically means that I'm gonna thread these two groups of people together into some kind of single group. So I made my own bed, now I gotta sleep in it.
2: <laughs> we meet up with the crew and continue chopping trail until we get to the open lead. It's an exciting moment.
1: Hey Bear, look! water down there, man. Come and see it. We're going to make it.
2: But bittersweet. Although this trail leads to the open ocean where the whales are, the coast here is jagged with ice and will be an impossible sight to haul a whale out of the water. This trail will have to be rerouted, requiring many more hours of ice
0: chopping. But you can't bring a whale up here.
1: So, so you, you have can to go
0: pursue okay. a whale and tow it somewhere. Or we can leave here in our boat and go somewhere where we can make a camp where we can pull up a whale. Lots of options. Moving the ice trail is hard
2: work, but an easy decision. For Richard, a scientist and community member, there are much harder decisions.
0: Classic conflict for us these days is seismic exploration and drilling for oil offshore. The Inupiaq people have coexisted with oil exploration and development in their region, they appreciate it. They need it, in fact, uh, all of our schools and health clinics and fire stations. On the other hand, there's there's the offshore region where our subsistence resources are located should the oil companies be allowed to explore for oil offshore in the Beaufort Sea during the fall months, right smack during the time of our bowhead whale migration. And so now I'm a whaler and I'm a geologist, and there, here's where I side with the whalers. If there's a way to get that seismic data at some other time instead of during our whale migration, then they should do it.
2: Though his route seems at times as difficult as a trail over the ice, Richard embraces both of his cultures. Like all scientists, he brings his cultural background to his work. And it is these cultural backgrounds, these different worldviews, that may provide the answers to today's scientific
0: questions. If we have a calculator, a a temperature, a ruler, and a microscope, we can learn about anything in Western science. And the Inupiaq approach to understanding our world, you don't need any of those. They just need personal experience and trial and error and uh, a knowledge of the medium developed over time, the stories and information from your elders. Is there conflict there? I don't think so. I think there's just two flashlights shining down the same path. (music)
1: That piece was produced in 1998 by Robert Woolsey with Lisa Bush. Richard Glenn still lives and works as a scientist in northern Alaska. Be sure to stop by the public radio exchange at prx.org to hear more pieces like this one. The Nature Conservancy provides support for this podcast online at nature.org stories. Committed to protecting nature and preserving life. I'm Samantha Brown with Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Join us next week for a brand new Nature Stories podcast.